to Walk in the Truth podcast. How do we know where to find answers to the toughest questions in life? While the simplest answer is the Bible, where do we start this search and how do we discover this truth? Today, in this teaching podcast, John Metter, lead pastor of Cross City Church, takes a specific text of the Bible and helps us find truth for the life we're searching for. I am so glad that you are here today. If you're glad to be here today, say amen. Yeah, a lot of you are, some of you aren't. I'm not really sure. If you have your Bibles this morning, please take them and turn to Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter three, verse 15, as we dive into a new message series called Expectant uh, that will be leading us up to East to uh, Christmas. And uh, we're gonna have a great time in that. Today, today's title is called The Curse and the Cure and the Conquest. And we're going to be looking at the very first biblical prophecy about Christ's coming. And surprisingly, this prophecy comes from God himself in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And as we begin to get into this series, let me just uh, say a few things about the, the graphic that you will have on the screen in front of you. This graphic was put together after we spent some time in the text that we'll be reading and studying through the course of December and the uh, expected theme is, is a big theme that overrides everything. But I want you to know what's behind the pictures on the graphic. Because our graphic artists did a phenomenal job. In fact, one of our uh, teachers said, you know, this will preach. The graphic itself will preach. But I want you to see the images and what they mean. On the bottom line, you see the images of the fall. You see in the middle of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God forbade Adam and Eve from eating from. And they, in fact, did eat from that which brought about the curse, the curse of sin. You'll also see two images on the bottom, one of fire, one of stones, which denote the sacrifice, the blood sacrifice that was initiated there in the garden when God clothed Adam and Eve with garments of skin. If you go to the top, you'll look also at the prophetic uh, statement of the Christ that would come and what he did. On the left is the cradle, on the right is the cross, and you'll see in the middle the future uh, of Christ, and that is as King of kings and Lord of lords. You'll see a sword, you'll see the scepter, and all this points to an expectant heart for what God has given us as an answer to the curse of sin. I love this graphic, and uh, you'll see it over and over without the descriptions around it, so you'll kind of know exactly what that means. I'll, I'll bring that up a little later in the message as well. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Let's stand together as we read one verse, one verse, and one prophecy that God gave from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. Now, I've got to set the scene just a little bit. The Garden of Eden at this point of the giving of this prophecy is not a wonderful place. It's a wonderful place in the sense that God has created that, but it's already dark because of sin. The serpent has come in, tempted Eve. You know the story. She gives in to the sin. She and Adam eat of the fruit of the tree that God has forbidden them to eat from, and all of a sudden, separation takes place. Sin separates them, and, uh, and they are hiding from God. So everything at the moment of the speaking of this prophecy is dark, it's negative. Ultimately, they're banished from the Garden of Eden, and they need some answers. Now, the timing of this prophecy is very, very important, and I'll share more about that in just a moment. But here's what God said as he curses the serpent. He first curses the serpent in verse 14 where he says, you're going to go on your belly, dust you will eat all the days of your life. And then in verse 15, the prophecy. Here's what it says. 
And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. I want to say it again. Read it one more time. And I will put enmity between you and this woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Bow together with me. <coughs> Excuse me. Father, in Jesus' name, I, I come and I ask you that you would give us direction. Holy Spirit, illuminate this text for us as we look ahead to all that you're going to fulfill in the person of Jesus Christ. And Father, today as we look at this prophecy, I ask that you not only help us see what it means literally, but also to help us know what it means personally. Father, become personal to us in a very real way through your Messiah and the sacrifice he made. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Please be seated if you would. <clears throat> well, I'm going to give you some bad news today. You know, the bad news I'm going to give you is necessary for you to understand the good news that God has given you. This is the very first proclamation of good news in the Bible, but it's also the first proclamation of just how bad the bad news is. And as we walk through this prophecy, we're going to see both of those things. Now, I've got to have kind of a mental image in my mind when I try to create the details of a certain context, and I'm going to try to create the context of this particular verse in prophecy with a war image, a battle image. How many of you uh, watch war movies or have watched war movies in your lifetime? A lot of hands go up. My dad was a Navy officer, and, uh, and by the time that I was born, he was out of the Navy, but he loved the Navy, and we would watch at night black and white movies that depicted warships and aircraft carriers and planes landing there and great battles, the Battle of the Midway, all those different kinds of battles, classic movies, classic war movies. And so I grew up seeing those regularly. When Saving Private Ryan came out, the war movie a few years ago, that came out that dealt with the storming of the beaches of Normandy, it caught my attention. And then as that movie played, as you watched that movie, it was incredibly accurate to the details, according to veterans that were actually on the beaches of Normandy. It was the most accurate depiction of war that they could remember ever seeing. And of course, the whole story of the Battle of Normandy and the storming of the beaches of Omaha and Utah and so forth was because the Allied forces wanted to liberate Europe from the clutches of Nazi Germany. So the Nazi war machine was running over Europe, about to destroy France. And that's when the Allied troops stormed the Battle of Normandy and the beaches of Normandy. And I want you to get that battle scene in your mind for just a moment. If you saw the movie, you know there's a 24-minute clip of that battle on the beach. And at the end of that battle, the, the, the beaches are littered with blood and bodies and guns and broken machines and ships that have, have sunk just off the shallows there. All kinds of smoke and haze and anguish and crying and, and all kinds of weary survivors very, barely pulling through. And that's the scenario that I want to have in my mind when I think about the darkness of the curse of sin. It doesn't make for a real popular message, but it makes for a real accurate portrayal of how badly we needed a Savior and how badly we need a rescuer from the ravages of sin in our lives. So as you look at this prophecy, I want you to look at it with the perspective of the war zone that we created 
when we sin. The prophecy breaks down into three different principles, one by one. First of all, the curse brings conflict. So God is speaking to the serpent in Genesis 3. And he tells the serpent, I'm going to curse you. You're going to be on your belly all the days of your life. You'll always be at enmity, but he doesn't say this in verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, God is giving us a reason for the pronouncement of the curse and all that's about to occur. As a matter of fact, when you read verse 15, you can read the whole history of the world. I really believe that. Just the three lines of verse 15 will tell you everything about the history of the world that you absolutely need to know. And right at the beginning we see that the curse and sin bring about conflict in life. Recently, I was having a, a conversation with a young man that visited with us over Thanksgiving, and he was a relative of one of our friends, and so he had uh, come into our house, and we had conversations with him for the first time. Uh, he knew I was a pastor, a preacher, and he asked me, what do you do when you stand up every week? Do you give TED Talks, or do you come up with this information on your own? And I said, well, I have a book that I preach out of. He goes, what's that called? And I said, it was called the Bible. He said, well, what's the Bible about? I said, well, it's actually 66 books. And he goes, oh, wait, whoa, 66 books? Where are the 66 books? And I held up a Bible. That's how little he knew about the Bible. It was an incredibly interesting conversation as I helped him understand why we have hope and who Christ is and what the Bible's message is. But in that conversation, he says, so tell me, how do you stand in front of a congregation and explain that you believe in a good God who allowed all the atrocities and all the heartbreak and all the wickedness on the planet? How do you answer that? I looked at him in the eyes and I said, I answer it this way. It's all about the free will of man. You demand a choice. You wanted a choice. You got a choice. And your choice brought the curse and the consequences of sin. And that's why we have conflict. And that's how, why we have difficulty. And that's why we're separated from each other and from God. Because of sin. And because of sin, conflict entered into the world. And as the prophecy opens up here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, this word enmity is there. Enmity only means hostility, and it means war. Read Genesis chapter 3, and you'll see that God gives us the reason for all this enmity and the reason for all this heartbreak and pain, and it's still true today, just as it was then. He said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you. He said to the man, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and done this disobedient act. That's what brought the curse on you, because of our sin Conflict entered into the world. And everything you see today in the way of conflict and bad news and darkness and difficulty and hardship and anger and hatred and wickedness and racism and everything else that you see today, it's because of our choice of sin. Alexander McLaren, the commentator of the Bible, said this, posing the question, is this what God meant man to be? And of course, it's a rhetorical question. God never created us to be in wickedness and sin and separation. He created us to have fellowship, to have harmony, to be aligned with God, that we make our own choices. And here, the prophecy that God gives us from the beginning starts right there. I'll put enmity between you and the woman. Now, Scripture defines <clears throat> why we have problems. And it says the location of those problems are the heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says it like this. 
The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Sometimes I have to remind myself when I see news headlines, that's why those things are happening. And I don't blame God. I don't blame organizations. I don't blame culture. I blame the individual, the wicked heart of every individual. And most of us realize this world is in cosmic conflict with God and cosmic conflict with each other. We cannot get along. We cannot do things well. It's a dark, dark picture. And we see so much of it today in so many different ways. In real time, the, the heart is desperately sick. The world is desperately sick. And conflict happens because of sin. Right. You know, it's because of sin that we have conflict over God. Where the creator is denied and creation is giving us the advice. Or conflict over truth where we're encouraged to have our own truth. And in disregard of what God's truth really is. We have conflict over sin where people do what's right in their own eyes instead of doing what's best for everyone or what's best according to God. And then there's that internal conflict for where our feelings and our perceptions are waging war with reality. And sometimes it's so dark and we're so confused we don't know the right way about anything. But let's place our blame where it belongs, on us. It's on mankind. And one of the most liberating things we can do is to own up to that and say, I need a cure. I need forgiveness because my sin has created this catastrophe. One of the most basic principles of counseling is that when people come in for counseling or an individual comes in for counseling, is to help them own their responsibility. Helping them come to the place of saying, I did this. This is where the prophecy of Christ really begins by pointing to the responsibility of sin and creating the conflict, the curse bring conflict. Secondly, this prophecy reminds us that the cure is Christ. Notice verse 15, second line. It says, and between your seed and her seed. In the Old Testament, the word seed always refers to genealogy. It always refers to the line that will come out of the individuals that are being addressed. And it actually answers the question, Who's going to come? Who's going to come and rescue us is the question. And with that statement of ongoing enmity and war, the conflict and curse of sin, where the statement of who's going to rescue us comes to the surface, this is where the answer is going to be found. Between your seed and her seed. That the prophecy states this, that the descendants or the offspring of the serpent will always wage war against the descendants of Eve. You can, with that, create those two lines of individuals, two lines of people, two lines of thought all the way through human history. Two streams, if you will, doing the work of Satan, who is the serpent of old, or doing the work of the seed of the woman. So let's just examine that a little deeper. The seed of the serpent, first of all, could only be the evil angels, the demonic world, and wicked men who would follow those ideas, later called serpents by Jesus. In other words, everyone who tried to undermine God, everyone who tried to undermine Christ. Early on in the ministry of Jesus, he called them out. Some of those evil, wicked people that are of the seed of Satan. Remember Jesus' baptism? Matthew chapter 3, verse 7 or so. Jesus was about to be baptized by John the Baptist just to be fulfilling all righteousness. If you remember that great, great scene. 
At that same time, there were those that were false religious leaders who were there also in line to be baptized. Their, heart, their idea was to usurp the ministry of John the Baptist, somehow interrupt Jesus in doing so. So Jesus addresses them by name. And here's what he says to them. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. The seed of Satan. Later on, Jesus in John chapter 8 is dealing with those that are questioning his authority. And he says this to them. You are of your father the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he's a liar and the father of lies. And all these verses help us define the seed of Satan. That is at enmity with the seed of the woman. And you can say it's not just demonic, but evil people who make this up, who make this group up, motivated by war, destruction, temptation, deception, lying. Everything they do is an attempt to get you away from the God who loves you. So the seed of Satan. Then the seed of the woman is the second part of this line. That would be those that have followed God from Eve's day into Israel and then from Israel's day to the church. And more specifically, most specifically, it refers to the person of Jesus Christ. Because later on in this same verse, it says, He shall bruise you on the head. So this is the first of many prophecies that we find in the Bible, but the first one that God gave us that answers the question, Who is our deliverer? Now, I love about prophecies this. Prophecies always offer hope in darkness. Hope in darkness. Anybody need hope in darkness? When I'm in darkness, I want hope. I want light. I need hope. I need light. When you sing the Christmas songs and carols, you notice none of them are real downers. They're all encouraging. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. We can go on and on and talk about the lyrics and the melodies of Christmas carols and Christmas music, and it's all uplifting. It's all encouraging because... They're pointing to hope, the fact that we have a cure for the curse of sin. There's light for the darkness that's all around our lives. And Scripture points to who that is. One of my favorite prophecies of Scripture about the Messiah is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Most of you know this verse, but most of you may not know that the first five verses of Isaiah chapter uh, 9 are dark verses having to do with war and neglected responsibilities, and bloody boots in the battlefield, and so forth. And then in great contrast to all this darkness is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. I want us to read it together out loud. I'm going to put it on the screen right here. Are you ready? Say it with me. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Those are incredibly powerful words. Even more powerful if you're in darkness and you need light. If you're in bondage and you need rescue. These words to Israel were so powerful to them because they knew that there was only one answer to the dilemma of sin and conflict that they were in. And that would be God's Messiah. New Testament passages that show the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies point to the fact that this Messiah was the seed of the woman. Look at what it says in Galatians chapter 4. For whom, when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, 
born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. It all points to Christ. It all points to expecting a Messiah to come. And here in Genesis 3, verse 15, God announced the cure who would come thousands of years after this announcement. You know what I love about this prophecy? Besides the fact that God is the one that gave us this prophecy, it's when it was given. Go back to the battle scene. Go back to the Garden of Eden. The fact that Adam and Eve are being banished from the garden, they're separated from God. Their futile attempt to cover their sin uh, has not been accepted by God. So he gives them the garments of skin. Think about all of that darkness. At that moment, with just Adam and with just Eve, God said, even though you've sinned, even though you've separated yourself from me, even though you've walked into darkness, I have a solution for you and consequently for all of the world in the Messiah that's to come. I love the fact that God did not abandon Adam and Eve in the garden I love the fact that he did not destroy them immediately. I love the fact that he does not abandon us in our sin, that he does not destroy us immediately. I love the fact that that Messiah that is prophesied is for all of us as a whole and all of us as individuals. It's huge. It's huge. So from the very beginning, God's prophecy was, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix your problem and the problem of sin. I'm going to send a Messiah. And that's why we have hope. That's why we are expectant, because God has promised that he would solve this. The struggle of sin and complex has always been accompanied by the hope and expectation that God will one day, one day bring us victory through the coming Messiah. So hundreds and thousands of years of the history of Israel, they all looked to that hope. And then when Christ came and fulfilled that hope, then it was for us to be able to see the Messiah has come. Now we look back at that Messiah and see that God truly fulfilled his word. But the third part of that prophecy is probably the most encouraging. Now that we've identified the Messiah, it is that the conquest is certain. I want you to notice that third line. He shall bruise you on the head, and you will bruise him on the heel. The word he is important there because it says the seed of the woman would be a he, a Messiah would come, and he would be a he who fulfills this prophecy, and that a battle would be consummated, and that the seed of the serpent will bruise him in the heel in a battle, and that ultimately the Messiah will bruise the serpent on the head. Now, you say this is a little bit obscure, it's a little bit general, but the reality is one is a mortal wound, one is not. In other words, the Messiah would not be finally put to death in any way, shape, or form, but that Satan would be. Now, this is all about battle. It's all about a war. And part of the prophecy is who will win the war. Satan will bruise Christ on the heel, but Christ will bruise him in the head. Now, I want you to go to the cross for just a few moments. At the cross, it seemed like all the bowels of hell were unleashed in that few moments, those few hours. But Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane made the decision to go on to the cross. What an incredible scene where he said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And then the betrayal. Then the army soldiers came. And then Jesus was scourged. He was falsely accused. Three trials that were uh, illegal, literally illegal. And yet later on, he was nailed to the cross. 
And I want you to realize this, that the seed of the serpent was hard at work during those days. Evil men, demonic forces, lies, scheming, corrupt government officials, wicked religious leaders, all worked together in order to condemn Christ to be crucified and put to death. But you need to remember that they were also scheming to keep you from God. Because to keep Christ from the cross is to keep you without salvation, keep me without hope. And so all the seed of Satan was at work in that moment on the cross because Satan wanted us condemned. He wanted us to be imprisoned in our sin and our curse. He wanted us to be in bondage. And that's why they attacked Jesus so viciously. They bruised him on the heel. But this wound would not be a final wound, would it? Because we know the story of the cross. Jesus Christ died physically on the cross, was buried, but he rose again from the dead on the third day, satisfying the price of redeeming mankind. In other words, he overcame death, and he overcame sin. But more specifically, he overcame your death, and he overcame your sin, and he overcame your separation. In other words, God's original prophecy was coming to pass to take care of of you. I love this picture. I love the expectancy that I have in my heart because I know God has taken care of all this through Jesus Christ who crushes the head of the serpent. A few weeks ago, I was reading in Hebrews chapter 2 about what Christ did for us. The, the, the book of Hebrews is a great book about the high priest, Jesus Christ himself, and his work as a high priest, as one who atones for us, who goes in between ourselves and God. And in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, we read some incredible lines that have so much to do with this. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless, render powerless him who had the power of death. That would be the seed of Satan. That is the devil and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. What an incredible promise that Christ on the cross would completely undo what Satan did in the garden and what man fell into in the garden. He completely undo that through the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. God himself gave the very first gospel message in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The very first prophecy of a Messiah is right there. And he created an expectancy that this Messiah alone would fulfill it. I want to go back to the chart for just a moment. As you go back to that chart, go to that upper part right there. Born of a virgin, laid in a cradle, and then one day crucified on the cross. And in the coming days, returning in his second coming as the King of kings and Lord of lords, with a crown, with a sword, and a scepter to rule over all. I mean, we're talking about one verse of a prophecy fulfilling all of the history of mankind and our expectancy for all of that to take place. Now, if you take a jet flight over the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you're going to find all the things we've talked about in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. You're going to see the curse of sin all through the Old Testament where people are saying, how long, O Lord? When will you send our rescuer? When will you send the Messiah? And then, of course, the gospel, the good news is Jesus has come. Therefore, the manger and then the cross. But if you go all the way to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, you get into a real book of war. Right. I mean, you talk about war, the book of Revelation is a book about war. 
And it also is a book about victory. I want to read just one verse. And all the symbolism of the book of Revelation and all of the incredible, amazing truths there, there is one that is crystal clear that no one could misunderstand. Revelation chapter 17, verse 14 speaks of a final victory. It speaks of a final act. It says this, These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because, why? He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are the called and the chosen and the faithful. Man, I love that passage right there. I have this feeling, this belief, I believe that the last days are going to be a great fourth quarter to a football game in life in general, you know? The whole idea of who's going to win and, and how's the victory going to come about. Now, we already know how it's going to win because we read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We know who wins. We know who's the victor. We know it's the Lord Jesus Christ. But this world will be looking on as all this unfolds in these final days, and you and I need to be able to have the expectancy and the confidence that Jesus Christ will win the day. I so wish sometimes we could just take a reality pill and expose the forces of light and darkness and good and evil. If we could take a reality pill and really see what's going on, you would see incredible opposition to the good news of the gospel, to the work of Christ himself. Incredible attempts to keep our people and populations around the world away from God, away from truth. People pinned down like in a war zone, unable to move, pulverized by fear and by separation and by deception, everything else. I so wish you could see that because to see that is to see the brilliance of the light of the Messiah that will sweep all that away by his second coming. And I'm looking forward to that day and I hope that you are too. In Saving Private Ryan, the great thing about the movie for me was that the whole movie was built around the idea that five army rangers were going to go looking for one man, Private Ryan, so that he could be brought back safely to his family. And the whole story unfolds with that in mind. Private Ryan had no idea they were searching for him, had no idea what had happened back home, had no idea that, that he was going to be rescued. He was just in the battle, just in the war, just in the darkness, death all around him. Had no idea. The strength of the movie for me was that it was not just about the many who would be liberated, but the one. Yes. And the strength for me of the prophecy is not just that the, all the population of the world would be liberated if they would put their faith in Christ, but it was about the one, the Adam and the Eve. And in a very real way, all the Messiah is going to do and has done is about the one, that is, you. It's incredibly important for you to take biblical prophecy about a Messiah that came personally. Because Jesus Christ, though he came because God so loved the world, he came because God so loved you. Yeah. It's important not to take Jesus and just put him on a Christmas card and just put him in a, in a carol. It's important that you put him on the throne room of your life because he's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who has come for you from the beginning. That was his plan. And today I wonder if you see him that way. And today I ask you, can you, would you, will you see him that way? As your Messiah, 
as your conqueror, as your rescuer, he's come from you. Through all the war zone, through all the darkness, he's come for you. In just a moment, we'll close in prayer as we always do. I'm gonna give three invitations to you today, first of all. It's a, it's a great time to make a decision to put your faith in Jesus Christ. We talk about Jesus, we preach about Jesus, we're passionate about Jesus Christ, but you know, Jesus Christ wants to be in your heart, not just in your head. He wants to be in your life. And the only way he'll do that is if you invite him by faith to be your Lord, to be your Savior, to forgive you of your sin, to take care of the curse of sin for you. And every time a person does that, they receive eternal life. Once and for all, it's theirs from that moment on. Jesus said, truly, truly, he who believes in me has eternal life. That's actually a past tense statement. Believe in Christ, it's yours. It's yours forever. But you must personally respond to a God who personally responds to you. So that's the first invitation. Come to the decision station. Talk to somebody there at one of these tables at the back that we've lit up. Secondly, I invite you to come to guest reception room where I can meet you and welcome you if you're a guest. Just give me a couple of minutes to talk about why we, why we think God is doing something special here and how we'd love to have you be involved with that. Thirdly, I invite you to invite others with you. This week as you leave, you'll be able to see something that you can pick up that's an invite to others around you. My encouragement is grab one of those, reach somebody out, reach out to somebody this week, bring them with you next week. Would you stand with me as we have a word of prayer? Father, I am so extremely grateful for a prophecy made at that moment in the garden that extends to the entire, the entire history of our world. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the Messiah, the rescuer, the one who came, the one who is, and who is evermore to be. Father, I thank you that you will come again one day. Jesus will be riding a white horse. Lord, he will be coming in victory. And Father, I thank you so much that we will be with him. And Lord, I pray for every person in this room today to consider the invitation to allow Jesus Christ to be the Lord and Savior of their life. There's no more important decision they can ever possibly make than this one. Today, we give this day to you. Thank you for being our Savior. Give us an expectancy of knowing you and walking with you in Jesus' name. Amen.